This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. How you doing, everyone? Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Ready to Record from Blue Girl Studios. My name is Daniel, the D3 Cohen. I am your host, and I am speaking to you from Blue Girl Productions' worldwide headquarters and studios here in my garage. I'm a 19-year-old aspiring musician, engineer, and producer, and like many of you, I make records in my own home studio. And, uh, you know, as Billie Eilish and Phineas have shown the world, I can be accomplished by young artists and producers working from home. This show is for people who love music and love to hear about how it's made. There's going to be cool stories and interesting insights for fans and pros of every kind. Hopefully, the show will be especially helpful, though, for all the people like me working in home studios. Some of today's biggest hitmakers work in home studios, so maybe we can help one of you realize your big dreams. Now, this is a very special episode that really needs no introduction. This is a part two, continuing my conversation with the legendary engineer and producer, Miss Lanise Bent. Now, before we get into this particular episode, I just need to ask you a real quick question. It's about a week away from November 3rd, so are you registered to vote? I want to talk to you guys about company called Headcount. Now, Headcount is a nonpartisan organization that works with the music and entertainment industry to get fans to vote. You can update or check your voter registration status by going to headcount.org, where you'll find all the information you need to be ready for election day. Now, for everybody who has been listening, I've just turned uh, 19 as of October 25th, which from when I'm recording this is yesterday. And when I turned 18, I voted a week later, and it was a big, uh, proud achievement of mine. So for all my younger audience, um, I hope you get out to the polls. I hope you're registered, and I hope come election day you're voting. I hope you voted early already, um, as I did. And uh, yeah, let's make this uh, the best voter turnout anybody's ever seen. So without any further ado, let's jump into my conversation with Lenise Bent. It's, it's not as much these days about the gear and about being in the same room. It is about the intent and it is about getting it out there. Um, and there and there is that less of a focus on you know, having to have people all together or you know, having uh, <laughs> what I believe is your favorite Mike and Mike pre-chain is 67 with a 1073. Um, I like that, yeah. <laughs> but it's not the end-all and be-all. I mean, right. there are a lot of great mics. So it, it's, that one is just a real easy go-to, and I know what I'm going to get. And because, again, um, because it's not about the gear, I need to have my tools in place. So uh, th- th- these tools are the you know, the palette I paint with and um, the instruments that I play. Right. And so, um, and I'm always adding to that and adjusting that as technology changes. It's, just, it's exciting for me. I'm, I, I'm grateful that I have a, a solid background, um, how to use different mics in different ways. And then I, I do know how to break rules and mm-hmm. I do you know, if there are any rules. Um, but I do know how to use um, so many uh, 
pieces of gear and plugins and and reverbs and you know mix mixing techniques and all these different things i love learning new stuff all the time and applying new stuff uh it just has to make sure that it's not there for the sake of using it and when there's an actual intention for a certain song um mm -hmm. I, I don't know if that's too abstract way of saying it but but just um because gizmos and widgets are available, is that appropriate for what I'm trying to record? And um, sometimes it's just the simplest way of capturing it because that is the sound that makes sense for that song. Right. And, and that artist, um, and then it, the pendulum swings all the way over to, you can get, you can manipulate till the cows come home all you want with any amount of gear and and play around and make it as electronic as you want and and that's the point of that song sure and and somewhere in between there is that uh there is that breed of people that use certain gear for the sake of saying that they use that certain gear i mean yeah I, i'm i'm sure you've encountered that that young dude who who's like i really want to use this fet 47 on this uh 65 ludwig bass drum for the sake of saying that on this song i used this fet yeah. 47 on this 65 ludwig bass drum and then you ask him well why um you know what about the sound of it that do you like or right. you know is that the combination this is oh what happens so much um especially with uh, new artists, uh, but people have been around long enough to where they, um, uh, they know about the U47 tube mic, and they mm -hmm. say, I want to sing into a 47 tube. And I'll say, okay, uh, but what we're going to do here, so we capture the best sound for your voice, we're going to do a shootout. And so we'll put up a 47 tube, and I'll put up a 67 or I'll put up, uh, and then I, um, it depends. There's a, um, some wonderful and expensive mics that sound great. They don't all have to be Neumann's, you know, and, and, uh, um, uh, I, I will always ask my assistant, especially if I'm going into a studio because I don't record every day. Assistant engineers record every day with different right. people all the time or, you know, a lot more often. And so that's where they learn to fill their toolbox and they get to use stuff I've never used. And so I always defer to them and I say, so what's your favorite mic these days? Or what are people using on this? Or what would you say if you need to put up a vocal mic? And I always ask them because they're working with a lot of other people. I want to know what else is going on there. So I put up about four mics. Uh, and then I have the artist sing the same thing in, to each mic. And the Pro Tools operator is the only one who knows which one's which. And we do, a, you know, a blind taste test, you know, afterwards. They come in and we listen to each one and randomly, not in any order. And um, nobody knows which one's which except the Pro Tools guy or girl, and um, then we choose. Mm -hmm. And I have to tell you, very rarely is it the 47 tube. That doesn't surprise me. And it, it's great for some people, but it's not always the end all. However, they got, they got a chance. And so I want them to know that they are involved in the actual process and can trust what's going on here and some instead of somebody trying to pull a fast one on them by mm -hmm. um not by not just saying that this is a better mic for you they actually got to hear that right. the one that we choose is the one that's best for them right and then they're comfortable mhm mm exactly or, at least more comfortable <laughs> ish ish i mean yeah. i mean we're we're <laughs> at the point where we're standing in a recording studio where 
we we look like we're we're piloting a rocket ship. Mm-hmm. Comfort, yeah. At least on the side of the people that are uneducated in the gear. Um, in the tube forty-seven vein, though, mm-hmm. um, I I must admit I really love tube forty-sevens on trombone. It does something. Oh, they're so good on so many things. Um, you know, uh, but it's not always the best mic for a certain vocalist. No, and I mean that 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 comes across with everything, be it a yeah. a tube forty seven, a FET forty seven, a Telefunken two fifty one. Right, all of those. Well, and I have to say that a, a microphone that I've come across that I really like. Um, that I actually own uh, is by a company called Sterling and, mm. um, and made here in I, Northridge or Thousand Oaks or see me back somewhere here in Southern California. Um, and I, I won this mic at uh, a recording Academy charity golf tournament. Huh. And I bought a raffle ticket and um i was hoping to win the three days at the spa you know (laughs) and and somebody else got that so i got well i guess i'm not going to win anything and then the last number they called out was mine and it was this sterling microphone and i'd never heard of it i didn't know anything about it um wonderful case tube mic and uh uh so I bring it home and and I just didn't have an opportunity to use it for a few months and then I was working on this all analog record that I'm work that is about to come out the the vinyl will be all AAA legacy quality no no D word you know nice. recorded recorded to two inch mix to half inch and the vinyl was cut off the half inch mixes so um, that's coming out soon so we were working on that and. Um, we were just going to do um, background vocals or something. So I, I thought, well, I'm, I'm going to listen to this mic and see what it's like, you know, and I brought it along and, mm-hmm. and, you know, warmed it up and we started doing background vocals. And my artist who, uh, the lead singer of Primal Kings, he is one of these uh, one take wonders. I mean, he's, he's a real singer and sure. so if we're recording and, um, uh, you know, he flubs it up or something, he'll say, roll back and punch me in. Okay, boom. So we just do that, and then we have the whole take right then if if he hasn't just sung the whole thing wonderfully all the way through. So um, Chris, that's the singer's name, he gets in front of the mic, and we start listening, and we both just went, whoa. This sounds great. It sounds like a 67, except there's a little more air and a little more clarity in the upper mid-range. And it so it had a slightly more modern sound to it, um, if that makes any sense. Uh, but, yeah. boy, I I love it. I love this mic. And they're, and, uh, they're, they're only $400, right? Well, it was something like that. Uh, I think it was six hundred. Then they they've uh, come out with a new model, and he actually bought one because he's built his own studio now. But um, uh, so there's a later version of it. But I love mine, and um, and I try it out on artists, and and uh, you know, and it's not expensive, so you can do really well for a good value at times. Yeah, I mean. the mic that I'm talking through is uh, about a $400 mic. It's, oh, is that a blue? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, the baby bottle. I'd baby love bottle, to, yeah, they're good. I'd love to try out the bottle rocket with the interchangeable capsules, and I've, I've been talking about getting one, um, mm-hmm. but, you know, well, mixed with the fact that there's other gear I need to buy and the and and that this mic sounds good, I've, I've, I've not dropped the drop the coin on on a bottle rocket or the or the four thousand dollar bottle system but uh, well yeah. uh, let me give you a bit of advice as an instructor uh, for both um recording studios and if you're setting up for your own production 
sound system. Um, the one thing that stays constant pretty much through it all is your microphones. Right. So that's not going to change a lot. Your recording formats are going to change a lot. Your plugins are going to change. Your um, outboard gear possibly is going to change. Um, your reverbs and any of those sort of things will evolve, but microphones kind of stay the same. So um, you want to feel good about putting your money into investing in good microphones. Agreed. And and that's what I've tried to do with the limited budget that I had. I have yeah. a bit bigger yeah. budget nowadays, but you know, I, I try and do my best to surround myself with mics that I know I can hold on to for a long time. Actually, one of my favorite investments is these, I have these pair of uh, ribbon mics from MXL and they cost MXL me ribbon mics. Yeah. They cost me 50 bucks a pop new and yeah, new and I'm writing this down. MXL is, you know, it's not one of those companies that you inherently go, Oh my God, these are the best mics in the world. And you know, I've, I've let one of my, hair get pretty dented up and it's been dropped a few times and it, it's that microphone that you don't really care how it looks aesthetically because you did only pay 50 bucks for it but the thing that i end up using these on which is especially interesting because you know my studio is a garage um, mm -hmm. is i use these on stereo rooms pretty often uh -huh. okay and mixed with crushing the hell out of these it's very interesting if you're in a small room i find uh, cheap mic, and, cheap mic, and good and good compressor uh, ends up giving some space that uh, I I don't really have here. Um, cool. It's 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 very neat. So yes, I I totally get what you mean with mics. And to your point, there's also <laughs> you don't need to spend a whole lot to get a interesting sound. Well, yeah, both ways. Um you know, um, get some tried and trues, um, that you can depend on, uh, and then you can get a little experimental, but again, the microphones are something that pretty much kind of stay the same. Agreed. That was actually the joy of having big budgets because you could switch out mics all day long. Right. And, you know, and, and so you could really, um, for, okay, get a load of this, uh, breakfast in America, you know, uh, how long it took us to get a drum sound. Oh, for, I'm go I'm going to be delighted to hear this. <laughs> 12 days. Oh God. Really? Mm-hmm. Yep. Whew. And it was, you know, uh, but there was no boom, 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 excuse the pun, um, high pressure 12 hour days or anything like that. But it was like, okay, where do we put them in the room? Okay. What mics? Let's try with these. Okay. Let's, you know, we're going for that Bob Siebenberg, um, breakfast or, you know, super tramp drum sound. Mm -hmm. Um, so, um, the kick drum, you know, you'd put the head on it and cut a hole in it and well that's not quite right let's put more padding in there okay let's pull it back okay let's make the hole a little bigger okay let's just take the head off all the way okay let's let's get another head um let's uh you know try these mics try these mics put this in there put that in there so after about 12 days of test recordings and all of that we got the sound that made that record well so, I mean, the whole thing is about getting the right sound. Wow, 12 days. Oof. Yeah, well, it was because, you know, it was a, a very distinct signature sound that yeah. uh, he has. And um, for it to be translated and captured in this new environment, um, the um, engineer was... Um, uh, Peter Henderson, who is the like protege of uh, Jeff Emmerich and uh, George Martin over at um, you know Air Studios, mm -hmm. and uh, so he knew what he was going for, and their other 
they had uh, the band had this uh, sixth band member named Russell Pope who did their live sound, but also did, uh, you know, their. He was just a real good sounding board and real. I mean, he was like uh, he kind of produced their sound. If sure. that makes any sense. Uh, but uh, um, Peter Henderson was the engineer producer along with the band um, mm -hmm. for this record. And uh, so they knew what they were going for. And um, so that's how long it took to get where they wanted to go. And again, mind you, it wasn't high pressure trying to get this sound because we've got a time limit or anything they they knew to take as long as they felt like they needed um when they wanted um Wurlitzers for um i guess breakfast and uh, logical song and um they rented every Wurlitzer keyboard in the city there were like 10 of them mm -hmm. in there trying to find the one that had the exact same right attack, right feel, right whatever. And um, I don't know which one won, but uh, uh, who's won. But that's what they would do. Um, he had a, when it came to doing the guitar parts, there was a whole wall of amplifiers and microphones and whatever and he, and Roger would play through whatever to get the right sound and you know and so it took that amount of time and took they took as much time as they needed until they got exactly what they were looking for and sure. that was the luxury of um you know having that sort of budget right um to that point, because most people who think of Donald Fagan <laughs> think of him as a bit of a perfectionist, <laughs> mm -hmm. was, was it similar yes. working with Steely Dan? Did did they have a similar process for? Oh my gosh, uh, no, it wasn't. Um, it was uh, excruciating at times <laughs> because uh, when they going back to when we were talking about doing tracking dates. Um, they would get, they would do the tracking date, and uh, it, as long as they had the drum sound and the drums was right, so they got the rhythm, and hopefully the bass worked out, and hopefully the rhythm guitar was good, and hopefully, um, you know, the piano by um, Victor Feldman was good. Or they could use, they could keep some of the stuff that was done in the tracking date, but basically they had to have make sure that the drums were right. Right. That uh, whoever played the drums and they got the drum part that they wanted, and then they could replace anything else, which they often did, uh, a few notes at a time, and mm. they would create it. And it was, uh, it was really um like i said excruciating i have a story that a lot of people like me to tell which i'm sure well you probably heard it if you've listened to any of my, the other interviews i've done um they asked me about this uh there's a song on the asia album called home at last mm -hmm. and um there is a line that goes, well, the danger on the rocks is surely past. And um, that happens, I think, three times in the song. You know, that goes into, that's like the chorus. Uh, and there's a musical figure right before that leading up to it. Dun, da, da, da. Well, the danger on the rocks is surely past. That's how it goes. Mm -hmm. um, so this is, we were recording to tape, and this is Donald singing in the vocal. And right. um, you didn't have Pro Tools to move anything around or to change things. So the timing of, well, the, was very specific. Mm -hmm. And so 
on the Monday, and our sessions were usually about four hours, four to, four to six hours, but usually around four hours long from six or seven o'clock at night till about 11 or so. Sure. Um, or if they got what they wanted, then they went home. Um, uh, so they were, that, that was a pretty easy in that respect. However, it was difficult within that time quite often because it was so intense. Um, but, uh, so Donald who never liked to record and didn't like the sound of his voice or anything. And, and so it was always, uh, very stressful for him to sing, but he couldn't find anybody else who could sing what he wanted to sing, have sung the way he wanted it sung. So he had to be the singer and sure. that's, that's how he felt about it. There was no joy on his part in singing these songs. So, um, for home at last in this part, uh, on the Monday night, he did well the, well the, well the. So he did the melody of well the for the first night. The second night, well the, well the, we doubled it. Mm -hmm. The third night, well the, well the, the harmony. And the fourth night, well, the, well, the, he doubled that. Uh, we took Friday off. Um, but I have to tell you that I had nightmares, or it was PTSD from that. Uh, I couldn't, I would just hear that in my head. And uh, I actually went up to the studio manager and I said, I'm, I'm losing my marbles on this record. And uh, I I don't know if I can stay on this. This is like driving me crazy. And um, and he said, you turn around and you go right back down in there. And he said, this, this record is going to be one of the best records ever recorded. You just get back down there. And I went, okay. And I did. And I'm glad I did. But boy, that was tough. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> I'm I'm at a bit of a loss for words trying to yeah. trying to think yeah. of something remotely. Yeah, how to respond uh, to that? It's just it's it's extreme. I don't I don't know any other story that kind of tops that for, on that sort of um, perfectionism, um, and to the point where that studio manager through the years, his name was Dick Lapalm. And he would call me up and say, tell the story. Tell us, so-and-so wants to hear the story. They don't believe me. Tell the story. Oh, so, boy. Yeah, so, um, and that, that just kind of triggered all sorts of twitches <laughs> on my part, if you can imagine. But, no, uh, no kidding. I mean, I, I can think, I can think of certain times where I've had to do overdubs of, of vocal lines or, uh, or horn parts uh even you know little keyboard licks but i don't think i don't think anything i've heard of from or or done myself uh could ever compare to 4 days of well the yeah no not many people can i don't think anybody else can either there are variations, you know, people have their own, you know, war stories and all of that. But that one was, I have to admit, pretty extreme. And um, and to this day, if that song is on and I hear that lead up, da, 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 I just, because that's when you had to punch. Right. And, well, the punch. Mm-hmm. And then they go back, go, and the producer, Gary Capps, he, he would just raise his finger like this and go, one more, or listen, put his finger to his ear, point to his ear, and, and then do this, like this, pointing at his ear, or one finger up, mm -hmm. one more. One more. You know, he's from Brooklyn. So, uh, yeah, fortunately, it was only like a four-hour session a night, but there you go. Four hours of well the four days a week. <laughs> How, yes. how how you're sane enough to talk to me today, mm. it, it, it is a miracle. <laughs> well, and that record, I worked on it 10 and a half months. 
But I have to say the engineer, Roger Nichols, was very um, uh, generous with me. I, I learned so many great recording techniques uh, from him. He was, he was a nuclear physicist as well as a recording engineer. So he, under, he was a scientist and knew proper recording and all of that. And uh, he taught me things like use the shortest mic cable possible. Um, don't let my cables touch, um, things like that, um, because it's the minutia. There's a reason those records sound like they sound, mm -hmm. and it's all that stuff adds up. Right. So um, he, uh, so it was very extreme, intense uh, learning on his part. Uh, for me, he just really took me under his wing, but. Um, it was very hard to record any other way when working yeah. with somebody else. They'd say, ah, nobody's going to hear that. Ah, nobody cares about that. I'm going to be like, I will hear it because I've been fine-tuned. I, I know it's there. I don't want that mistake to go by. I don't want, you know, and it was really hard to compromise after recording at that level. Right. Right. I get, I get that. Totally. Yeah. So, um, but one gets to, uh, that was extreme. The whole thing was extreme, magical, absolutely magical times on that record when Wayne Shorter came in to do the solo on Asia was pretty wonderful. And um, um, there's just, uh, I'm just blessed that I got to be a part of that. Totally, totally. Now, in the vein of lyrics and things of that nature, uh, and recording vocals, obviously we've been talking about how it was to work with Steely Dan. Um, <laughs> working, working with Donald Fagan is is uh, is certainly no joke. I can I can tell from both what you've told me and from uh, the indirect experience that. Uh, Gordon Clay had working at Don's studio in New York while recording the first record with Groove Collective. Oh, okay. Um, but I, I'm also curious because uh, obviously you did uh, Blondie's Auto American. Mm -hmm. Was there any kind of perfectionism with Debbie Harry? Was was there anything um, remotely no. like that? Nope, not that I recall, um, because uh, that record, actually, I don't know if you've listened to it much, um, but one of the just fantastic things about it is every single song is a different style. And sure. so I got to really get creative as the engineer. And Mike Chapman, the producer who is madder than a march hare, uh, and brilliant. I learned so much about production from him, even as wacky as things were. Um, but that record was uh, really an important record. Uh, we, my first orchestra I ever recorded is on there. Wow. Um, yeah. And um, we did this at uh, United Western Studios. It, uh, which is now East West and United Studios. Those are two separate studios, but they were both owned by the same people. So it was known as United Western. And so in the United side, we did the basic tracks, the backing tracks, basic tracks. Mm -hmm. um, and I got to take a whole day getting Clem Burke's drum sounds in there in the big room. Um, but, uh, and I, and I asked for that because I told Mike when we were going to do it, I said, yeah, I'd like to, you know, spend some extra time first getting a, a good drum sound with the drummer and making sure the mics and all that. And he goes, yeah, me too. I'll, I'll take up to three hours. And I said, hmm. well, um, I would like to have a day with just the drummer, so to make sure their heads are right, make sure tuning's right, make sure if we want to switch out the snare, they can do that. You know, whether any of the things we want to do, whatever mics, whatever we're going for, record a little bit, he can hear part of it, blah, 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 blah. You know, do all of that mm -hmm. um, to make sure that's in place. And 
then bring in the rest of the band. Uh, so, right. so, uh, uh, so we did that. And, uh, so we did most of the basic, we did the basic tracks in the big room at United Western. And then we did the overdubs and mixing in, um, studio three at East West, which is known as the pet sounds room. It was right. Beach Boys room. So, uh, which is a magical room. So with Debbie, um, She's so stylish. She's an actress too. Mm-hmm. And and she knew what she wanted as well. Donald doesn't like to sing. He or he didn't then. It was excruciating for him. He would jam his hands in his jeans when we were recording vocals until his knuckles bled. You know, he was it would just be he would have to take a relaxant. Mm-hmm. You know, uh to be able to relax enough to sing and he'd come in and be tugging on his hair like he always did and say I can't do this I can't do this I gotta you know get Barry Manilow get Barbara Streisand get somebody else I can't do it I can't do it and uh um but then he'd have to do it so we'd get him so it it was doing vocals was not fun with him Debbie knew what she wanted and was good at it and and each song she played a character and um and I got to that. That's where I used the U, U forty seven tube on a couple songs with her, as well as an eighty seven, as well as a fifty eight, as well as a sixty seven. Different songs. If you listen to it, each one is different. And so I just had a blast with that. And and she did too when it came down to doing vocals. And um, uh, you know, with women, the dynamics in women are. Uh, much greater typically than with men um so you go from verse chorus to verse chorus um so i would learn the song while she was be running it down i knew because we went very fast as well right um, um mike had a chart that he would say okay today we're doing this we're doing this we're going to work this out and he would just it grid this song out and till it was done. And, um, and that was a very efficient technique that I picked up as well. Mm-hmm. And, um, um, so he was, you know, um, mindful of the budget and, um, but I would learn her song. I'd learn the song and where her dynamics were. And so I would ride the fader as well as run her through one of my favorite limiters back. And it was really cheap back then. It was called um, uh, DBX 160. And they were little, you could fit two in a rack. So you usually had a match set. Personal favorite of mine. I love those if you can find them. You have the old ones with the meter. So, and right. uh, you could hit that uh, like 10 dB and you didn't hear it pump. And, mm-hmm. uh, but so between that and riding the fader, knowing to come down like 10 dB when the chorus came in or at 5 dB or something, you know, depending on the song, dropping down. So I would be re- recording automation to tape, if you, as it were. Um, as well as how hard I was hitting the DBX and, um, and that's how we got, um, the, the vocals for her. And, uh, that was always my favorite, uh, what, regardless of the microphone I use. I mean, I think I used the, uh, 1176 on her a few times. I'm not exactly sure, but my favorite and for, uh, Mike had, uh, a lot of female vocalists, mm-hmm. um, Holly Knight, um, Holly Pinfield, Susie Quattro, uh, Cher, um, a few other people. Um, and, uh, Shandy Cinnamon was one of them. She was, she was great. Wonderful singer. Uh, so their dynamics were much more than recording men. So that's how I had learned how to record female vocals before. And, um, so it, it didn't overcompress and you didn't oversaturate the tape and you couldn't really hear it. There was an authenticity to it. So um, I hope 
if you listen to that record, you will listen to it um, differently and just enjoy the songs. It was uh, two big hits came off of that record. Um, one was called The Tide is High, which was a whole lot of fun. Um, it was a Caribbean influenced song. And um, the little demo was just this little Caribbean song. And she turned it into, we had uh, horns and strings and, and then lots of percussion. I got to bring in three great per percussionists, nice. um, uh, Emil Richards, Ollie Brown, and Alex Acuna. And I told them to bring everything. And we put them in Studio 3, and I tracked them three times, all playing. And um, so it's that's what's on there. It's like nine tracks of percussion. Uh, and I got to be able to mix what I wanted out of that. But uh, it was just a joy. And there's a, a favorite song on there that I have so much fun with. And it was going to be the third single. And it uh, the record company decided to move on to something else but it's called um t-birds and it's got uh flo and eddie on it who used to sing with frank zappa but they were the turtles which was mm -hmm. a band yeah so uh, mark bowman and howard kalen and so they're singing background vocals on it and it's about a roller derby queen and it's just loud and bombastic and you feel like you're in a roller skating rink and yet she's singing about the ancient mayans and and all of this and and it's just my favorite song and i'm sorry it didn't become a, a single because it it would have been a hit hmm. i'm sure and also on that record was um uh rapture which is the very first hit rap song with music hmm. yeah and um so that was quite wonderful to have that and the the album itself uh, was a platinum record, and um, so I'm the first woman to make a platinum record, and that was it. So I'm very grateful for that record and that opportunity, and Debbie Harry and the guys in Blondie and and Mike and all. It was a, an extraordinary experience and um, had a huge impact on my life in many ways. Well, it's a it's a cool record. It's if if I'm ever there were one to to uh be your first platinum album <laughs> this is uh this is definitely a good contender yeah thank um, you yeah um in the vein of certain music and this has been uh, this has been a topic of conversation for me lately um i have a buddy i'm working with i just uh was producing a anti uh <laughs> anti-donald trump song you may you may take that how you will but, which uh, one uh, <laughs> <laughs> of course um this is a this is one that he's named the ballad of sniffy mcadderall uh it's actually uh it was it was actually the um what's it called on the music from blue girl segment in uh, our second episode i oh. believe yeah and uh we just shot a video for it but in the in the time of talking to him, uh, he he's in a Brazilian Americana uh, fusion duo called Quail and Rudnell, uh, with this incredibly talented uh, Brazilian guitarist and singer uh, mm. from a town called Piracicaba. Uh, his name's Chico Quail, and they made the record, and it took them, gosh, uh, six or seven years to make the record. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of one of my favorite tracks, um, and I love playing it with Dave as well, is a song called Laia, and it didn't make the record. Oh. Um, so in that vein, um, and in in that idea, are there any tracks from uh, record dates, projects, things of that nature? Um, be it from the big guys like Steely Dan or Blondie or even some of the smaller acts that you've worked with. Have there have there ever been a, one of those tracks that you really completely felt for and maybe vied with when this is my song off of this album and it didn't necessarily make the cut? Yes. 
I have a very specific song. It was I was working with uh, Art Garfunkel. Oh wow! And uh, it was on his solo record, um, Mary Claire. Um, I'm I'm embarrassed that I can't remember the title of the album, but he did this song called Finger Paint Me Now, which was as intense as Bridge Over Troubled Water. Um, it had that bigness and that emotion of that song. And again, I have goosebumps even mentioning to you. And it was such a beautiful song lyrically, and I don't know if it ever came out, but... Um, my experience was that was something was going wrong with his U87 mic, and so I was sent out to switch the mic out while he was singing in the dark. The only light on him was from the control room, which was very faint, and um, he, I needed to switch the mic out very quickly, and so we had a short mic cable on, you know, you would always put a short mic cable on those sort of mics so you could, if you had to switch them, you switch them really fast, and um, you didn't have to take that con uh, the connector off and try to fiddle with it there. Any right. 87 or all that, you you had a short one on, so you could switch it if you had to somewhere else, so you didn't interrupt the flow. So I was sent in there, and I'm at his feet where this uh, cable is to be reconnected, and I put up the other mic right next to it and just went plump, plump plugged it in and uh but all I could hear was him singing a cappella in that beautiful art garfunkel voice and I'm at his feet and I look up and the only light is this angelic light on this angelic face with this angelic voice and I just it was like I was struck by lightning it was one of those epiphany moments that I don't know how many I will ever have in my life. And that's when I just knew I'm doing the right thing with my life because I just had this experience. And that song was so beautiful and lyrically so wonderful. And the record company said, you know, we don't hear a hit on this. We want him to do the song with James Taylor called What a Wonderful World that Sam Cooke had done before. Don't know much about history. Don't know much about geography. You know, that song. So right. my horrible vocal. Um, so they pulled it off the record and put that on instead. This bit of fluff that they put out as a single, and I guess it helped sell the album. But to me... That one song, Finger Paint Me Now, was the best song on that whole record. That's how I felt. And I don't think it's ever been released. I'll have to look. Broke my heart. Yeah, there are some of those songs that just completely, um, they, they just do it. Well, quite often... <laughs> um, Typically, people, uh, they would record, the bands or artists would record more songs than they needed, and then they had a pretty good idea which ones they wanted for the album, uh, but in case they, for some reason, they needed to switch some out or something like on when we were working on, um, on the Age album with Steely Dan, they also did uh, two songs that came out on a, a best of or on FM or something. One of them was here at the Western world. Mm -hmm. um, and then I'm trying to think what the other one was, but then on the, the FM, we did FM separately. Right. That was for uh, TV for the movie. It was for the movie, I think. And then, um, then I worked on part of Gaucho as well. And um, then Super Trump was coming in, and I begged and begged and begged for that record. And um, also, I had been on with Steely Dan for ten and a half months. Right. A and 
it was intense and it was i i felt i had gotten as much as i was going to get it's just going to be more of the same and things weren't going so well for them uh you know there was a lot of conflict between donald and walter at the time um and so there was a lot of tension and and issues and uh I was ready to do something else and fortunately the my boss you know believed it too and and smiled on me and took me off but when I heard that uh Supertramp was coming in um this was you know over a year after uh I started working there and all um I went up to the studio manager and I told him, oh, my gosh, you know, I really want to work on this record. Crime of the Century is the record that made me want to become a recording engineer, and I really want this record. And and he said, well, that's really great, um, except they don't want a girl. And I went, what? I'd never come up against that. And there were four women at the village assistants and two male assistants. Um, and I was just like dumbfounded. I couldn't, that had never come up before. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess that's odd, but it never had. And so I was pretty upset about that. And um, so I kept saying, well, I'm I'm the one who should have this record. I should have this record because I know all their music and um, I'd be the best one for it. They said, well, sorry, they want a guy. And um so it got closer and closer to them coming in, and then I thought that it's not going to happen. And then, so they were supposed to start on a Sunday, and it was the Friday night before. And I held out until then, and I just went, "That's it, it's not going to happen." So I went to the Pear Garden Sushi Bar and drank too many Pear Garden Special drinks <laughs> and drowned my sorrows. And um, fortunately, somebody else was driving, so went home and passed out and at 10:30 the phone rings and um so I'm awakened in my drunken stupor and it's the studio booker and she said be in studio B at noon on Sunday you're working with Supertramp and uh suddenly I'm totally sober and <laughs> I said what happened and I said well uh one of the guys is already on a different project and the other one didn't want to do it um, because it would be so long. And I said, wow. So, so on, at noon on Sunday, I walk in there and Russell Pope, who I'd mentioned to you before, was at the console and they're loading in and all. And he, he kind of turns his head sideways and looks at me and goes, can I help you? And I said, well, actually, the question is, um, can I help you? I'm Lenny Spent, and I'm going to be your assistant on this project. And just got the big eyes. Um, And uh, I think they had been asked whether it mattered to them whether they had a girl or not, and they're British, and they probably said, well, no, no, we'll have a guy. I I don't think it really mattered that much to them. but it was a real surprise for him to see me <laughs> as the assistant. And then uh, I said, so uh, where would you like me to start? Well, how can I help you? Yeah, oh, and he went, oh, 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 okay. And um, then we went on from there, and it, it really wasn't an issue ever. But I spent all this time fretting and being angry and being, this can't be right, this can't be right, this is not a reason why, you know, I should not do this record. And mm-hmm. and it turns out I was the right person for the record so um it all ended up well but boy they took me to the 11th hour didn't they no kidding seems like uh <laughs> seems Torture. like quite the thing to put your assistant through <laughs> yeah well I did get it and I'm very glad I did and it had an enormous impact on my life in many ways as well This was an incredible conversation. 
Truthfully, I'm actually at a loss for words. However, in spite of my lack of good diction, I think there are a couple of points Lenice made that I'd like to emphasize. For one, time shouldn't dictate your music. Now, Lenice's experiences with long projects was in a time of big budgets and big name record labels backing albums. However, with, even with limited budgets, we as home studio engineers have the benefit of not needing big budgets at all. We live in a time where, as home recordists, we have our own time and our own space, so being able to stretch out something is not that big of a stretch of the imagination. Want to spend three days getting the right drum tone? Well, assuming you can keep your kit set up in the studio, go for it. Feel like experimenting with different instrumentation? Be free. Hell, add a didgeridoo if you think it'll fit the song. We get to do that because we are in our home studios, so why not? Of course, I would suggest using this advice sparingly, because as Jerry Danielson, Will Maggid, and Tree Adams have all stressed, getting projects finished and released definitely takes precedence. Even so, being able to experiment and getting the sounds in your head onto tape, so to speak, is a major benefit of home recording. Secondly, get good gear, but don't think that good gear always means expensive. There is some damn fine equipment out there that doesn't cost that much at all. So keep your eye on good reviews, good value and expensive equipment, and the used market, because you can find some steals out there. Lenice, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and being the first guest with a two-part episode. I have enjoyed our time talking greatly and can't wait to talk again with you soon. For all of you uh, interested in looking at Lenice's discography and finding Lenice, you can find her at lenicebent.com. This is Blue Girl Gear Talk, and I want to continue on a point that I was just making a second ago, which is about inexpensive gear. Good gear does not have to cost a lot, and I think in the world of home studios and the advent of everybody being able to record off their laptop, this phenomenon is more present than ever. The microphone right now that I'm speaking through costs $400 on the brand new market, and in fact, I think the newest version costs even less than that. I know I bought mine used for about $160. For Lenice, she has a beautiful, very inexpensive microphone from Sterling Audio. It's US made, and it sounds great. As Lenice said, you don't need to have all Neumanns or all Telefunkens in your studio. You can do great work with blue mics or Sterling mics or inexpensive knockoff preamps uh, that are knockoffs of Neves. Hell, look at companies like Warm Audio. They are one of the biggest names in prosumer and project studios right now. And all of their gear is clones of some of the classics. At a fraction of the cost as well. If their prices and their quality are any indication, I don't think we need to be spending that much money anymore on good gear. So, find some interesting equipment. It doesn't have to be a big name. It doesn't have to cost that much. And... Make sure that you like the sound of it, obviously, and go for it. Record with what you got, and just have fun with the process.
This is Music from Blue Girl, and this is a very special edition of Music from Blue Girl, because as promised, I will be giving you guys an update of Moonlight, but I also want to bring in a very interesting track that's near and dear to my heart. This is one that I actually brought up in episode two with Will Maggot. It's a song by my dear friend and collaborator Dave Rudnell called The Ballad of Sniffy McAdderall. And the reason I bring it up is because it was released just a couple of weeks ago. Now, uh, this particular song is a uh, bit of a satirical take on the life of the current president of the United States. Uh, for some, it is polarizing, so I will recommend you be advised on that. But I think it's just a hoot to listen to, and we had a lot of fun doing it. So you can find it on YouTube. You can find a video which I actually produced. It's called The Ballad of Sniffy McAdderall by Dave Rudnell. And uh, I'm just going to give you a little snippet from the first verse, and then we're going to get into Moonlight. All right, here we go. Sniffy McAdderall got a win. That birth from dead, but blew it all. Ran away to college, but he still can't read. Spending all this time chasing women angry. He sounds so stupid, messing up some words. How is he the president? It's so absurd. He was born in the richest, thinks he's one of a kind. Snorting so much at it, that is out of his mind. If it make it wrong. Alrighty, that was The Ballad of Sniffy McAdderall by Dave Rudnell. And that was a whole lot of fun to produce and uh, work on with him. Now, as promised, this is a snippet of my band's song, Moonlight. This song is featuring uh, a young singer named Josephine Hirsch, who is actually the daughter of Tree Adams, who was a guest on our fifth episode. Now, her vocal was actually produced and engineered by her father, Tree Adams, and um, she did a, just a fabulous job. Uh, of course, uh, hats off to the first singer that gave a crack at this, Nabila Wildman. She did an excellent job as well. Um, due to creative differences, uh, she had to bow out of the project, but uh, I just want to say from the bottom of my heart, thank you, Nabila, for being on uh, and giving it your all, and thank you, Josephine, for uh, stepping in and giving it a shot. Anyway, um, this is a snippet of the song Moonlight. This is coming from the second verse and pre-chorus into the beginning of my guitar solo, which I'm very, very proud of. All right, here we go. That's the show, everybody. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed talking to all you. Special major big thank you to my guest, Miss Lenise Bent, for coming on the show. Lenise, thank you so much for being on. Thank you for giving us so much of your time. It was an utter blast to talk to you and a real treat. You know, you have been on some of my favorite albums that are on my record player all the time. So being able to talk to you and hear the stories of how they were made was just an utter joy and an utter privilege 
to all my listeners, let me know what you think of The Ballad of Sniffy McAdderall and Moonlight. Send us an email at r2r.bluegirl at gmail.com. I really want to hear your opinions and see what feedback you have for me. In addition, let me know some of the gear that you have in your studios. I really want to see what you're working with. Tune in next week. We're going to have photographer Steve Eichner on the show. He just released a book called In the Limelight, which is a photographical documentary of the New York club scene of the late 80s through to the 90s. It's a really interesting book. I got an early release of it on PDF, and it was just such a blast to look through all these photos. They're just such fun, and it's really great. I highly recommend checking out his book if you haven't already. As always, there will be more gear to geek out on and more music to share with all of you. For now, though, this is Daniel the D3 Cohen signing out from Blue Girl Productions Worldwide Headquarters and Studios in San Francisco. We're ready to record.